Yeah, we, it was a month and a half, I think. Um, uh, well, closer to two months, right, yeah. Um, it was, uh, I actually caught COVID in, the, in that period for my fourth time. <laughs> I'm only up to three myself, so you're uh-huh. really kind of pioneering. It's, uh, it's not like it was terrible, but it's not like your energy, it takes a while for your energy sort of to, to become back to normal. I still don't have the sense of, like I have, I, I lost my sense of taste for the second time and it's back to a degree, you know, it's like you could taste, but it's really weird. Like my wife made some food and it's like, I don't taste any lemon in here. <laughs> yeah, I've heard some not COVID related, but I've heard some horror stories about people losing their sense of smell and just finding it extremely difficult to live. That, that's one that I think we take for granted. Yeah. And you kind of smell awful things, but the, the delight you take in things is a little bit less. And it's also, it's very interesting that you have a tendency to salt your food more, which is not so great for you. I mean, the smell thing is really interesting to me from the standpoint of how much of our memory is completely tied to smells and how much mm. picking, you know, I, I was in an elevator years ago and I smelled my grandmother's perfume. She had been dead for a long time. And, and that, I, I think there's something about smell that transports you faster than any other sense. Yeah, that's what they say. Uh, there's some, emo- like, it's the closest to our emotions. Uh, and yeah, and we have very, very, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. It, it, yeah, it, it's a very intense connection to, to memories and very intense connection to, um, you know, this whole mystery of pheromones and why you're attracted to someone, you know, is, uh, you know, it's, of course, a whole panoply of, you know, it's your taste, your looks. Stuff like that, but this is a whole nother thing that can be very, very strong. You see animals, they just go up to each other and smell each other. <laughs> That's, yeah. We like to consider ourselves better than that, but I don't think that at the end of the day, we're really as far removed from that as we seem to think. Well, they, they talk about that like a dog's sense of smell is the equivalent of the difference between very, very fuzzy, probably much more than this, uh, VHS and 4K. And we're at VHS, if we're lucky. <laughs> so that they can hear it sort of like they're spelling things within things. And yeah, it's, 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 it's like being able to see things in an extra dimension. Yeah. Where are you based these days? I live in uh, Marin County, north of San Francisco. I'm from the East Bay originally, so I, I know it well. What, how long have you been out there? Uh, mid-90s. Pretty long time. You basically went from being in a touring bands and then what you moved out there right around the same time that the heads kind of imploded? Well, a little bit later. Um, my wife and I had a beautiful loft on Prince Street. And uh, we, she had a very bad experience with a homeless woman trying to stuff bloody bread into our like one-year-old daughter's mouth. And she kind of went, I don't know if we can really raise three kids here. And that plus the, uh, uh, no way to predict how much money I'd be making with Talking Heads being at the very least inactive at the moment, at that moment. And then of course, 
sort of more formally breaking up. Uh, and we wanted to be someplace where if we had to rely on the public schools, we'd be okay with it. As well as she really, you know, she felt overwhelmed and I didn't really want to leave, but I was, but I, but then we, we found a beautiful house here that, uh, we, we really loved living in. And we, uh, it was a kind of a wreck of a house, which we sort of wanted. We wanted to be able to make it our own taste and not be paying for somebody else's taste that we didn't really like. Um, actually our house was written up in the New York Times in the home section. That's a real badge of honor, yeah. I think. It was, yeah, it was on the cover of the, pictures of it were on the cover of the home section, I can't, like 96 or something like that. So when you say Prince Street, you're, you're talking Manhattan. Yes. I mean, obviously Marin, all of that area north of San Francisco has, has changed quite a bit in the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. But was that a difficult transition having been in the city for so long? Uh, well, yes and no. Um, I mean, I'm, I miss the intensity of New York and the idea of it being open all the time and, you know, that was the convenience of that. But, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and then I lived, I went to college in, at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I've lived all these different places and I saw things I really liked about each one of them. When I came here, it was like, okay, well, I'm exchanging the sort of intensity of, of the city for the intensity of nature. And the, and I also, we also had some, like, we kind of experimented with coming out here and we lived on houseboats, which was quite an adventure. And we would, uh, and we would go down to, uh, you must know this then since you're from the East Bay, but, uh, I think it's 11th Street where Slims and Paradise and DNA are. And we'd walk down the street and like the doorman would go like, hey, Jerry, you want to come in? And stuff like that. And we'd be like, God, this is great. This doesn't really even happen in New York, this kind of open arms attitude. So it made us feel kind of at home immediately. And we, uh, we live actually in county property, like sort of looking at the ocean up on Panoramic Highway. And uh, there was sort of the feeling, it's also, I have a feeling that I'm going to start exercising and be healthier here. And it'll probably uh, prolong my life or make my, make my life better. And then I became a producer. And one of the reasons we moved here is that there were, because of the summer of love, there was like a, people had invested in recording equipment. There were studios and people that could fix things. And there were, I also had the uh, a relationship with, uh, the sort of marriage of computers and synthesizers and then digital recording. So uh, I was very good friends with Dave Smith, the founder of Sequential Circuits. I was good friends with Evan and Peter Gotcher at, at Digidesign, the people at EMU. Roger Lynn moved up here. And frankly, it was a sense that there was an excitement that you really didn't have in New York. You didn't have this excitement about technology and excitement about new ideas. Uh, and I, one of the things that I've always, I mean, it's, it's not perfect, but the people who try, who have sort of said, I want to become a venture, I want to be the founder of a company, I want to come up with an idea, is it's sort of like people are getting rich because they came up with something that no one thought people would really need or want, and then they did. 
you know, having lived in the East Coast and the Midwest, I saw an awful lot of people that wealth was created by maybe taking over a company and laying off half of the people. And, and a very, and what I, you know, I had enough sort of left-wing politics when I was in college. I went like, boy, that's a really, uh, a quandary of uh, a moral a moral dilemma, we'll say. And this sort of cleaner idea, really, it's sort of, you know, I would say the beginning of this is Edmund Land at Polaroid. He came up with instant photography and created a business that had never existed. Yeah, they were in uh, Boston, right? They're from Boston, yeah. And, and of course, Kurzweil's from there, too. And Kurzweil, be, I worked for a software development company called Cambridge Computer, this is way before Apple existed or Microsoft existed. And I worked on PDP, the, the DEC PDP-8, the PDP-11, and on mainframes at, uh, at, the, at, where, at Wang uh, Computer Center. And then Wang came out with their, uh, their uh, word processor. And, but there was this idea of uh, here of the fervency of, like, a brand new idea. And so I, I kind of was excited by that. And that made it easier to give up what I loved about New York, is that there was something special about San Francisco. And I also knew that there was going to be, that there was and was going to be a continuing collision between music and computers. And this would be at the forefront of it. And maybe I'd want to be involved in that. So that was part of it, too. So if we're talking way before... Apple computers, then we're also talking way before the talking heads, I would imagine. Yes, it was before the talking heads that I worked for Cambridge. After the Modern Lovers and before the talking heads. I should know the answer to this, but but how long of a period were you in the Modern Lovers? I know it was just that one album. I was there from 1971 to 1970, uh, like early in 1974. So that's a fairly substantial amount of time, like certainly when you're yeah. When you're that age, right? Three years yeah. is when, when, when you're younger. After Jonathan Richmond kind of goes off and, and you know, continues to do his own thing, did it, not, did it seem like music wasn't going to be a viable option for you? Yes. I mean, I had sort of tried to, I don't know, find another band or do something. You know, I, you know, I always thought that uh, what... I had not thought when I went off to college that I would be a professional musician. And then I met Jonathan, and I realized that my thinking about music and my style of playing fit with what he was doing, and that nobody in the world was doing anything like that. And to a degree, when I joined the Talking Heads, my style and my thinking about music really uh, matched theirs well enough and certainly was adaptable to very quickly be immediately like a seamless transition for them. And I think that, you know, they, I think they, they had, had uh, other people, I guess, try out for them who were so, somewhat sort of tried to show off on how much they could play. And they would go like, yeah, but it doesn't sound like our music anymore. It's all covered up by this other music. And, and my attitude was much more as, how do I reinforce what is here? And, so in a way, I had to wait around for the world to catch up to the ideas, that, because it really is true that the modern lovers, at the very least, anticipated sort of the ethos of punk music. You could say we were one of the first punk bands. Some, some people would take it back to the Velvet Underground or the Stooges, but I think the modern lovers, in some ways, 
is a little bit more direct because it's sort of like we have we absolutely have something we want to say. We're very passionate about saying it, and we're going to find a very simple and direct way to express this. And it was in contrast, of course, to standing against bands like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or Yes, the sort of excesses of prog rock. I mean, I had been a big fan of the of the Soft Machine, and I think that prog rock in the very beginning was interesting, but then it became, you know, every song was 15 minutes long, everybody had studied at music academies, the, the lights were excessive, I mean, everything about it was excessive rock, so to speak. Or you might say mannerist, if you're a, uh, a painter. And so the modern lovers were like, no, we're going, to, we're going back to basics. And of course, punk was exactly the same. That's really interesting, you know, because I've, I've heard that discussed a lot on, on an intellectual level. You know, certainly when you're talking about musical movements, people frame it as being a reaction to something. But I guess they never considered it sort of that literal or that direct or, or that you as a band were so conscious of the direction that things were going in that you were actively trying to push against it. I think that Jonathan was, you know, I mean, I, Jonathan was, was performing these songs before I joined the band. And David was had already joined him. He, I think he very much wanted attention and said, if you're doing this, if you're going left, I'm going right. And I think that that had to do with his frustrations in high school. I think that, you know, I would say that uh, Gordon Gano of the Violent Femmes and Jonathan on that first Modern Lovers record probably conveyed teenage frustration or angst as well as they've ever been. And why those albums live on year after year, I mean, I, I think you know that I produced the third uh, Violent Femmes album. And, you know, they keep having a new audience regenerate. And it's because they, they, they sang songs about those frustrations that every teenager, you know, who struggles with, am I, how, how do I remain popular or can I be popular or what is it like to not be popular or, you know, I can't get a girlfriend or whatever. They, they really, uh, frustrations with your parents. And, uh, and I think Jonathan caught that too. Not absolutely as literally as Gordon, um, but two amazing songwriters. And I'm delighted and proud that I've been able to work with them. Have you heard the newer albums I've done with Jonathan? I have. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of his work, and till, until today, he's a very idiosyncratic, both artist and, and person. You know, I've heard, I've heard some interesting stories about you know people interacting with him personally. But the do you feel? Did you get what he was doing pretty much immediately? I'm not sure I saw it as he did. I was making a film. I met Jonathan, and I was making a film about alienation for a documentary film class that I had in college. And Jonathan seemed like the antidote to, or the, or he took strength from the very things that I felt these other people that I interviewed were feeling were beating them down, which was sort of the, the commercialization of life. And he talked about how much he loved 
the Howard Johnson road sign or the XSO. And how much he hated it also. That Cir- Circle K song. and Yeah, yeah. but uh, on the other hand, he hated the modernization that was taking place. He hated Exxon. He liked Esso. He, you know, it was a more organic and more, uh, you know, the 40s and 50s logos that were starting to change in the 60s. He was, he liked the, the, the older ones. And he felt that there was emotion in them that was being pushed out, you know, that Exxon, that a, a, they had done research to make sure that it wasn't a bad word in any other language. But, you know, what you now do, you know, you come up with it. I am involved. Uh, I, I co-founded a pharmaceutical company that has a antidote for snake bites. And we were going through names for the product. And the whole thing was it can't mean something in any other language that, you know, is bad. It can't, it can't overly suggest a cure for what you're doing because then the FDA won't do it. Well, you anyway, you end up with these bizarre words because of that, that uh, are, it's sort of, it, it's, it's the process of elimination that gets you to the word rather than something that's like the process of like, that would be really cool. I mean, SO stands for SO, standard oil. And that's where it comes from. You know, so it's very simple. Right. <laughs> Where does the pharmaceutical bit come in in all of this? Well, I, ha- I happened to meet this guy. I had a party, and I had met a bunch of uh, neuroscientists. And I said, God, there's a lot of smart people here. I said, does anyone have any great ideas I haven't done anything with? And that was 11 years ago. And I thought that it was going to be a nonprofit and that we would hand off. It was a different idea at that moment uh, to, to the Gates Foundation. And a friend of mine had recently taken over been the head of agriculture there. And I thought, well, this will help the world. But it'll be six months of work, you know. Well, it ended up not, they, it wasn't something for them. And so we uh, pressed on. But it's, it, it is a remarkable thing. Uh, so, so mosquitoes kill the most people. Humans, humans are next. Oh, malaria, dengue, fever, um, there's other things too. And then humans kill the next amount of people. And then snakes. Snakes are third. Snakes kill 125,000 people every year and maim half a million to a million people. And we can, what we have is, what we think is going to completely change it. So, it's, uh, it's a very, it's very exciting. Uh, it's one of the things that, Moving to San Francisco and the startup communities, I kind of feel that that startup being having a startup became almost like this, what being a musician was when I was in the sixties and seventies of like aspiring to changing the culture is what and I think that music as it became more ubiquitous and that it I don't think it has the same linked to your, like, personality that it once did. I think it's a little bit more the background of people's lives. I have to say that, actually, I think this tour has had been successful partially because we when it, it works best when we get a, uh, a mixed-age audience. And you see people loving the music in their 60s all the way to people who are t- teenagers, you know. And 
And there's a joy. There's just a joy about the music that comes through. I think it was Chris that brought you over to the Talking Heads. Is that right? He was the one who who reached out to me, yes. Again, you ended up with these two, I'll just use the word idiosyncratic characters again. What was... What was that experience like going from, from a Jonathan Richmond to a David Byrne? Well, there was a time, you know, obviously there was a time in between it that we talked about, but it was very different because the Talking Heads were in their late 20s, and Jonathan was, had just entered his 20s. So there was an innocence to Jonathan and a uh, sophistication to the Talking Heads that were very different. Um, I mean, Jonathan is really smart and a really advanced thinker. You know, you are very different no matter how smart you are when you're 21 than you are when you're 29. Because you have, and so one of the things about the Tony Heads is that the sort of the business was much more together. They were, they had, uh, they just had had some good advice and they were very sensible at certain decisions they were making. Um, and I think that I, because of certain decisions that would, did not work well for the modern lovers, I had a perspective that helped uh, frame decisions that we had to make as a group as Talking Heads, and we made successful decisions and didn't. You know, I think one of the biggest things that can happen to bands is bad business decisions can, you know, anything that interrupts the flow and growth of a band is, you know, it's a fragile thing for it to succeed. I mean, you not only have to have great talent, great songs, be at the right time, but a lot of things have to happen also, too. And, you know, one of the things that happened with the Modern Lovers that was was bad is that we had in Jonathan someone who was always being creative and growing, and he was going to obviously grow into new places. And we had in David someone who wanted perfection. And I think that Ernie and I were sort of in between, although I think I probably was more where Jonathan was because I was more about improvising. So David's sort of, David really sort of brought that sensibility to the cars. Even like some of the bass parts he suggested to Ernie, the eighth note that is like, like bubblegum music, like the Archies, like boom, 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 boom. This is the car, all the Cars early songs. That's exactly how they they go. And he wanted Ernie to play that simply because he thought it was so direct and so. Whereas, you know, was that the right decision for the Modern Lovers? I don't know, but it kept. It was a, you know, the, the record that ended up coming out and influencing people was a demo tape that we made. So. The funny thing is, is had it not come out when it came out, it might have just come and went. Because even though record companies were very excited about us, growing that audience that we had would have, was going to be a challenge at that time period because we were so against the sort of uh, zeitgeist of the moment, which is what made us so refreshing and exciting to record companies. If they saw us in the right uh, place, where the audience reacted in a certain way, they would go like, oh, they're going to change the world. But it, it would have it would have been a lot of work. So anyway, uh, so anyway, so, Dave, so back to what you said. So David and Jonathan both were very, very driven and very sort of ingenious 
uh, writers of lyrics, um, very keen observers of the world they lived in, but with very, very different uh, sensibilities about it. In reading and listening to some interviews with you specifically around this tour, I, I went back and watched the Rome 1980 concert that you know was really effectively the model for this entire thing, and it's really striking to me. Obviously, there's a lot of you know joy emanating from the band with all the all the singers and uh, you know everybody on stage, but it's really Adrian <laughs> that is you know like it's it's really him that is bringing this just like pure sense of of joy that is maybe i mean obviously an incredibly talented player but but maybe is to a certain extent outside of those sort of strict structures that you were talking about there's there's an element that when adrian plays the guitar it's like he's taming a wild beast and that's very exciting to people and he is completely unique and i felt that when I, when I began thinking about this, and then, they, and then Adrian and I were talking about it, I felt that it, you know, it really needed to be both of us. I mean, I, I put that band together, so I felt a sense of ownership of that first tour that, uh, you know, David became much more involved, and obviously with the sort of finale being stopped making sense, where he, you know, was very much about designing what it looked like and the lighting, the moving of the stage, all of those things. But it was just about the music in 1980 and about putting together this unbelievable band, which I, which I had hired. So I felt this sense of connection and ownership to that, to that uh, sort of uh, incarnation of the expanded Talking Heads. I, mean, I think Adrian's essential, but I don't think Adrian, it wouldn't, you know, he, there's other places, like his trio and in... King Crimson, where he plays amazing solos, but it doesn't have that joy that that band had. So I think that there's that sense of the rhythmic excitement and just, you know, people just having this, like, God, is this a lot of fun to be playing this together? There's a story, I don't know if it's apocryphal, I, I, I know Chris kind of refuted it in his book, but that Adrian was being seriously considered in that period as you were kind of transitioning to from the talking heads to the heads. Um, and that, and that he, that he, he sort of outright refused. Um, now, obviously, he's there singing all these songs. I mean, did he have, did he have any misgivings, sort of taking up that place and and being effectively, you know, being one of two or or the front man for this tour? Well, I think it's, I think Adrian sings the most songs, but there's, you know, there's, I mean, I'm singing songs and Josh. And singing songs, and then Sammy and Shira are singing lead on one song, but we've also made the songs more about group singing at times rather than one personality. I mean, sometimes we follow the uh, arrangements exact, more exactly, but we never, we never, you know, we, no, we didn't ever think anybody could replace David, and so we wanted to what song did you feel that you could bring your own personality to? So I think that I think that Adrian thinks of it that way. Is I love these songs and I love playing them, and I'm happy singing some of these songs. I've sung other people's songs before, but it's like, I, I you know I don't see him as the front man. I see as both as front 
people, and I, but also shared definitely with Josh and Sharon and Sammy. Um, and, you know, one of the other great things about this is, like, arranging these songs with a horn section is totally different. And, you know, same thing as, like, you know, we're doing Fellahun Ginji. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, from Discipline. And uh, and we're doing Rev It Up, and we're doing a version of, of Slippery People. I had played Slippery People with Mavis Staples and uh, Turquoise, which was what Cool, Cool, Cool ha- used to be with the addition of, of Dave and Taylor, uh, that they had done Slippery People. And I thought, well, we have two girl singers. Why don't we do that version? And, of course, everybody in the band knew it, so... Uh, so, you know, we, we, we want, as I said, the blueprint is the 1980s show, but we also, like, we, we want, we are casting a nod to where Adrian and I went after that period. And also, let's feature, um, what cool, cool, cool is. And I actually had a very interesting conversation with Larry Mullen, who came to the show in New York. And I was talking about the joy that we'd had when we played Hartley Strictly, which was amazing because it was, you know, 55,000 people. And, of course, everybody's in a good mood. It's a lovely fall afternoon in San Francisco in Golden Gate Park, and it's a free concert. So why wouldn't you be in a good mood? <laughs> you know? But uh, it was a really amazing feeling being there. And Larry was saying, I'm not sure that you felt exactly the same thing in the Talking Heads because of the focus that people have on... David's unique personality, that was that was going along with being in the mood of the music. Whereas this, our show is less focused on Adrian's personality or mine. I mean, yes, we're singing the song, but I think it's more holistic. It's more about I love these songs, I remember these songs, or I wow, I heard I just heard this album and God is it great to see it performed really well and, and live right in front of me. The stakes are different, too. I mean, you know, the first time around, there's obviously a tremendous amount of pressure, you know, specifically with the Talking Heads. There's a, there's all this buzz building. I, I assume that that every single record label, every single executive at, at a record label has their opinion what to do. And then obviously, at a certain point, things get a little fractured and frayed. So maybe... I don't know. Maybe maybe it wasn't as easy to just have that pure sense of enjoyment that you're able to have now. Well, I think there's pressure now, too, because we have a lot to live up to. And we had to find a way to do this that we felt like if we had ownership over it and we're, but we're respectful of what we're referencing. Uh, you know, obviously it was a big part of my life, and that tour was a very important tour in Adrian's life, and one that he looks back on. And, you know, you were talking about he said one of the great things that he loves about playing this tour is that when he goes out with his trio, like all the, the pressure's on him nonstop. He sings every song. He plays every solo. He does every, you know. Whereas here, he's like a guitar slinger. He comes in and out. He sings a few songs. But there's other places that are more relaxing. <laughs> Places where he says, there's really not even a part for me to play. I'll just sit here, and when my background part comes in, I'll come and sing it. And so there's a, a freedom and a joy with that. He's also not using his, mo- the, his most modern rig on this. Mm. You know, he's not, you know, he, 
It's not that he's absolutely recreated what he used in 1980, but it's still, it's a, it's a stripped down and more of a, you know, no synth guitar, for instance, or various other things that he would, he would employ nowadays. No loops and no, all these other things that technology expanded and allowed guitar players to do. Obviously, 1996 until now, more or less, is an, is an incredible amount of time to go without doing this thing that had been such an essential part of your life for, for so long. Now that you're back doing it and, and you've had success, and it sounds like you've, again, been able to connect with maybe even a, a, a new level of, of joy in performing live on stage, is do you see yourself continuing to perform live to go out on tour after this tour ends? It's a good question and I'm not sure. I think that I have to feel that what I'm doing is is that I'm really excited and proud of it. I do think that I've written enough songs and I could imagine doing more of that, that, uh, you know, I could easily do it. You know, I did a tour with casual gods and then I did that tour with Chris and Tina on the Escape from New York tour. So, you know, reapproaching my solo catalog and maybe and other songs, I certainly have learned things about singing, being a producer. It was very interesting how producing and thinking about music practically every day of my life very intensely taught me things about my own playing that I didn't learn by playing. And it was, you know, there, I might have learned it had I devoted myself to playing from when I started really concentrating on being a producer. But, you know, I was in charge of all sorts of different kinds of musicians. And what I loved about, about being a producer is, you know, I produced an album that sort of ventured into the world of country music. And I don't think I'd have ever done that myself, really. Um, and, you know, someone that's more metal than I would have probably ever done, or more this way or more that way. And being a producer, you'd be like, well, I have ideas about this, and now I have the pro- someone else's voice or their guitar style or their keyboard style or their drum style that I can help influence, and my ideas can be expressed by someone who can do it because they live that life or they live that ethos in a way that I don't. Um, so I, I, I did like that. I sure have loved uh, performing again, and it really ha- it's been a challenge to get myself in shape for it, so to speak. And, you know, it's like last year we did five shows, and this year we did five shows in five days, and that was that was that's actually more days in a row than we normally did in Talking Heads. So that was a challenge. You have to you have to keep yourself healthy. <laughs> There are some outliers, some cases, um, you know, Rolling Stones probably being the most famous of them. But at, at a certain point, every, and I talked to a lot of bands about this, every artist has that, they all have that conversation of, of how much longer is this feasible? You know, it, is, it, it does, will there come a point when, you know, we can't physically do this anymore? And, you know, I, I suspect I, I could be wrong, but I suspect that you're at a point now where it's like, I enjoy this thing. This was such a big part of my life. You know, we're all on finite timelines that, you know, maybe it makes sense to go and, and re-engage with it. Yeah. Well, it's been, 
I try to keep myself interested. I mean, you have, you know, we, we sort of went off on the snake bite company. Um, I, I like new challenges. I like getting involved with uh, scientists because when I first went to college, I thought I was going to be a scientist. And then I decided, no, I want to be an artist or an architect or a musician. And, um, but I, it's been great to sort of like push myself to go like, oh, I got to learn about chemistry. I have to learn about physics. I, have, I was on the uh, board of directors of a microprocessor company, design company. And well, I had to learn all, and then we were in a gigantic lawsuits. And, you know, I had, I learned all this stuff about law and about, and I like that. I like, I, I like, it, it makes you a better conversationalist among other things, but I, you know, I wasn't, I'm not so obsessed with music that it's the only thing I want to be thinking. I, I, I like challenges and I like thinking about different things and I like trying to have success doing different things. Um, I'm sort of disappointed. I used to paint at one point and I have never taken it back up. Uh, and I kind of wish I'd done that or maybe I'll still do that. You know, It would have been a good pandemic project. Yes, it would be. It would have been. And, and actually, Adrian took up a painting program and uh, during the pandemic. Um, uh, you know, I, my wife and I designed the house we live, re, well, redesigned it, and that was a great project. I was in architecture school when I left to join the Talking Heads, and I think I would have really loved architecture. That was a... Uh, that was like two, you know, it was sort of like both of these paths are really interesting. One thing I knew is that if I, that, that by the time I was invited to join the Talking Heads, it's like, you know, it's, it's a young man's game being in a rock band. And so I got to do this now. And if it doesn't work out, I guess I could come back to architecture. It couldn't be the other way around. <laughs> so, and, uh, you know, it was, it was funny, of course. I, uh, and I announced that I was leaving architecture school. All of my professors said, well, like, when you make a lot of money, you know where to come. I'll help you design your house. 